My name is Mike Dietrich, and today it's the uh, Veterans for Peace radio show broadcast on KODX 96.9. Today we're going to talk about the uh, uh, VA and its uh, associated problems. And with us today is Mark uh, Foreman. Foreman. And he's going to give us an introduction to his himself, how he got involved in uh, Veterans for Peace, and some background information on Save Our VA. Thank you for coming, Mark. Oh, well, when I was asked to come, I, I jumped on it because I've got a lot of experience um, as a, a disabled veteran from the Vietnam War, and, and I've spent a lot of time um, with the VA uh, for the past 53 years. And uh, I've seen a lot of wonderful evolution happening within the healthcare system of the VA. And uh, I think we need to um, you know, get more of us, uh, on the radio, TV, whatever, to let people know that the VA has come a long way. Um, and, you know, um, I, I guess I'm, I'm going to kind of introduce myself first. Um, I was, I graduated from high school in 1966 with no intention of joining the military. However, because I wasn't a good student in high school um, and I didn't want to be a burden on my parents. I decided, you know, in 1966, the war was really cranking up and I really wanted nothing to do with the violent aspect of being in the military. Um, but like I said, I didn't want to be a, a burden on my parents. And uh, I joined the Navy because my dad had been in the Navy during World War II, and um, he thought it was a good idea to serve my country in that way. So, and plus, the, the Navy didn't seem nearly as threatening to me um, at that time uh, as the Army and particularly the Marines. Um, so I joined the Navy. I, um, I became a corpsman. Um, went to medical school, um, core school, and loved every minute of it. But a week before we were to graduate, and there were 200 of us being trained as corpsmen uh, at Balboa Naval Hospital in San Diego, um, a week before we were to graduate, they called all 200 of us into a large auditorium to announce that we would all be going to Vietnam um, with the Marines. And at that time, I was so young and naive, I didn't have any idea that the Marines were part of the Navy. And that was exactly where I didn't want to be, it was with the Marines. But I just felt like I, I was on this wave. Um, I knew I was going to be drafted, so I decided I'd outsmart them, you know, and, and um, join the Navy before they could draft me into the Army or Marines. Um, <laughs> so uh, when I found out that I was going to be going to Vietnam with the Marines, um, I, I was really freaked out. And I had thoughts of going to Canada, but I didn't have enough guts and didn't think I had the wherewithal to know how to make a living, um, you know, up in Canada. So like I said, it was, I felt like I was on a wave that I could not get off of. 
And if I, if I was to go AWOL, um, my parents would disown me. My, my parents were very good people, but they were um, fundamentalists when it comes to God and country. And um, so I, I had that pressure on me. And so, you know, I, I decided because I had all of this really good um, medical training, I felt I was capable of saving lives to stop bleeding and to keep them breathing as long as I could. And so I, I, my brain went to where a lot of us want to believe we're going to become heroes. And, um, you know, if I could save one Marine's life, you know, my life will have been worth it. That's, that's kind of what I was thinking at the time. So I've been given this training and, and, um, I landed in Vietnam in um, the end of March of 1968 and was wounded um, quite seriously on the fifth week of being in Vietnam. Uh, we ended up, there were 83 of us Marines near the top of a, a mountain near the Haivon Pass um, that we became completely surrounded by 1,500 North Vietnamese regulars. <clears throat> and just as the sun was setting on the first night um, that we were up there, just as the sun was setting, they opened up on us with everything they had, and they killed about 70% of us within the first, killed and wounded 70% of us in the first 10 minutes. Um, it was, it was absolutely horrible. Um, I didn't get wounded um, that first night, but the next morning, I, um, they opened up on us again. And when I went out to, um, you know, to care for the wounded, I, um, one of the Marines started yelling that, that they got Harry, uh, who Harry Bowman was it was becoming a very good friend of mine in those few weeks that I was over there, another corpsman. And when I got over to Harry, I saw that he'd been shot straight through the heart and he was dead. And he was trying to get to a Marine whose arm was blown off. And, and um, I wanted to get to that Marine so I could put a tourniquet around his arm. But then I got, I was shot. My right hip was blown off. And um, I ended up uh, waiting uh, the next five days um, until a medevac chopper was able to to get to us. We were we were in a part of the mountain, huge trees, very thick. Um, you couldn't see the sky, and of course, a medevac chopper wouldn't wasn't able to land. So after a couple of attempts to get a medevac chopper to us that were shot down, we. Um, um, we were told that we had to blow up enough trees that they could land a, a helicopter. So that's why it took five days um, before I could be medevaced out of there. And uh, I spent the next almost year in a body cast out at um, um, Bethesda Naval Hospital. And um, I realized when I came home, when I finally came home, that my, my life had, had changed quite a bit, but I didn't know, I didn't realize until 
as the years passed, how deeply affected I had been by my war experience. And like I said much earlier, I, I've spent a lot of time going to the VA. I, I had a horrible infection, um, and that became the most life-threatening part of this whole ordeal of being wounded. The infection was was really, really bad. And so that's why I had to keep going into the hospital. Um, and here it is 53 years later, and I'm still working on healing. Um, I think I've come a long way with the help of the VA. Um, but I got, I was, I got most of my, um, spiritual healing from alternative forms of, of healing medicine, such as Gestalt therapy and um, what's called, um, oh God, well, meditation, a lot of meditation. I, I, I was becoming addicted to painkillers. And when I realized that I had become addicted, it scared the hell out of me. Um, and I knew I had to get myself off those pills and I found meditation in a very deep way. I could go into meditation to calm my mind, to calm my physical body, my emotional body. Uh, so meditation became a, just a wonderful tool to keep me from um, becoming addicted uh, to medication. And I've been using meditation ever since. Um, in my life, whenever I get myself into a, a, a real stressful situation, I'm able to calm myself and, and, um, and deal much better with whatever's stressing me out. So um, that gives you a picture of, of I'm rated, I've been rated 100% uh, disabled um, just about all of this time, the last 53 years. And uh, I've been able to do quite a bit with my life, I feel, anyway. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, having been through this kind of, kind of trauma, it, it forced me to really look at myself, um, to figure out who I really am. And I've, I've come a long ways with all that. Hi, everybody. I'm Michael McPherson. I'm the co-host of the radio show with Mike Dietrich. I just want to thank everyone for tuning in and, you know, listening to the show today. Um, Mark and I served on the veterans. Well, he was a board member and I was executive director and I've known him a long time. And I want to uh, just say I really appreciate you coming on to the show because, um, you know, retelling your story. I, I don't know many, how many times you've done that, uh, but like you said, it's impacted you deeply and retelling it can't maybe sometimes it's better than others in terms of be telling it, but just thank you. Sure. And, and we're blessed to even have you here, yeah. um, you know, listening to um, what happened to you. I feel, I feel that whenever I'm telling my story, that not only am I getting the word out about the hell of war, which we all know, we've heard that expression for a long time. Those who haven't been in it can't even begin to understand how horrible it is. And there's no way that I can express in words to anyone. Um, but I consider it therapy for me to be able to tell my community and my society um, my experience in war. 
And uh, that's why when I, I was at a convocation, an environmental convocation in, um, uh, let's see, that was 1990. It was in Washington, D.C. And there were a lot of um, not-for-profit not, not organizations tabling at that event. And that's when I saw the, the, the banner, Veterans for Peace. And I knew when I saw that, that this was potentially a real life changer for me. I tried to be a member of, of um, Disabled Americans, uh, just, um, DAV, um, Disabled American Veterans. And they were so right-wing in their philosophy on war and like that. I, I just knew I, I didn't fit. I, and then I ran into Veterans for Peace. And I felt like the round peg fitting into the round hole. And uh, I didn't feel so alone with, with all of this stress and confusion that I was dealing with. Right. But it took me until 1990. I was wounded in 1968. Yeah. It took me until 1990 to find Veterans for Peace. And uh, I started coming to the national conventions uh, in 2006. Mm. And it just really changed my life. Yeah. Um, it, it gave me a great purpose. And then I, then I became a, a board member. I got voted in as a board member in 2012 until 2018. And it was an honor a true honor to, to be on that board of about, there were between 12 and 14 people on the board from all over the country, all having different experiences with having been in the military. What an education. It was just, like I said, a real honor to be part of Veterans for Peace. Well, Mark, that's, that's quite a story. I've got a lot sort of a parallels with you. I didn't get shot. But I, uh, I was there in Vietnam in 1968, went through the Tet and May offensives, and uh, I got out of the service. I didn't really know at the time whether one hell of a case of PTSD. Yeah. I, uh, and I eventually I stayed away from the VA for 10 years, more than that, yeah. 15 years, because I didn't want anything to fucking do with anything. Yeah. yeah. Then I finally get into the VA, and I went through some, um, eventually went through some therapy up there, which involved using the Thich Nhat Hanh's mindfulness uh, 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 therapy. There actually, I was at a VA uh, session with about 10 other Vietnam and Iraqi vets, and he handed out these Thich Nhat Hanh. And as you may know, we all maybe know, Thich Nhat Hanh is a pacifist Vietnamese Buddhist monk. And I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah, using that sort of, uh, handouts at the Veterans Administration or official handouts to this group of kind of screwed up veterans it was quite quite amazing when I thought about it. Uh, but the, that that mindfulness therapy helped me get rid of this sort of uh, slideshow uh, uh, thing that I had was you know you keep I don't know if you really call them flashbacks, but I just couldn't keep the images of Vietnam out of my but I got it so it was mitigated with some writing therapy. And they really helped me. It was like, uh, it changed my life, really. Uh, yeah. It changed my wife's life. Uh, so, I mean, the VA, I've heard, you know, I mean, some of the people actually criticize, but they actually do do a pretty good job with the resources they have 
of dealing with uh, people like you and me. Uh, yes. And and uh, and I I'd second uh, your sort of opinion about Veterans for Peace and the comradeship that I've I've been a member of Veterans for Peace since 2003. Prior to that, I was a member of Vietnam Veterans Against the War, and that sort of comradeship is uh, it's a space to be able to tell your story and relate right. to people who were veterans, not just combat veterans, but just the military experiences that, yeah. you know, you're speaking the same language. It's, it's right. very critical. You know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, um, I knew when I got out of my body cast and was sent home and it took six months of physical therapy to get me up on my feet on crutches. And I, I knew that I had to um, figure out what I was. I, actually, I needed to figure out who I am. I mean, I realized that my parents, you know, they, they set a foundation of values for me. And I didn't agree with some of their values. And, but who am I, you know? And, and so that question of who am I became real prominent for me, that I had the responsibility to invent myself and to know myself well enough to know um, what directions I, I wanted to go in. And I went, I, I'd always, well, I was getting 100% disability uh, payments from the VA, which gave me the freedom to go in just about any direction I, I, I wanted to go in. And I'd always loved art. So I decided to go to art school. And after two and a half years of art school, I found stone carving to be a great, great passion. And I, I did get out of school after four years, art school. And I, I developed a, a sculpture studio and I carved stone with unbelievable passion for 10 full years. And the, the figures that I would create um, ended up being um, symbolic of how I felt about humanity and that I am a part of humanity. And they were some pretty menacing creatures hmm. that I carved for about three years. And then I became more abstract with my symbolism, but it still was very symbolic. And it talked to me, these figures talked to me uh, to explain who I am. Mm. And, um, you know, human beings are a beast. We, we are, we are, I mean, we are animals and we mm -hmm. are a beast. Mm -hmm. And that's all there is to it. You know, I mean, there are benevolent beasts um, and there are very malevolent beasts. Mm. And, you know, we're all a part of this being human. And so once I carved stone for 10 years, I was figuring out who I am. Um, I'm a very empathetic person. I, I believe that love is the answer um, for so much if, you, if we have the courage to go in that direction. Um, so after 10 years of carving stone and figuring out who I was, then I um, decided I wanted to serve my nation I realized that I loved art and I loved kids. So I got certified to become an art teacher. And I did that for 20 years. Um, and what, a, what an incredible challenge 
that was. It was I, I um, and it was urban kids. Um, you know, there was a lot of I, I, I. It was an education for me to see how much disparity there is in our country. Um, you know that there are kids coming from very secure um, backgrounds, and there's a lot of kids, too many kids coming from insecure backgrounds. And so you so, taught predominantly in a, a black school, predominantly black school. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It was it was between eighty and ninety um, percent African American, mm-hmm. and and being a white guy growing up in a white town, Ames, Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't have much experience, you know, with other cultures, but this was a real eye opener for me. Yeah, and and Veterans for Peace. Um, really helps me fulfill that calling. You know. That's great. That's great. Well, uh, all three of us uh, use the VA because uh, Mike, you use the VA, right? I yeah, absolutely. I, it's, it's it's great healthcare, you know. And uh, some if they're they're limited by their lack of some of the resources and staff, and it varies a little bit from region to region, but. The VA here in the uh, Seattle area is an excellent, excellent uh, uh, resource for me, and uh, I'm I'm glad to have it. Uh, I, I had one knee replaced there. I'm in the line for getting another one replaced, and uh, you know I got I got some disability, and they do a good job of uh, like PTSD and blood pressure, and I came back with malaria. I didn't know I had it. Wow. Oh, wow. So, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm uh, grateful they stopped my malaria attacks and yeah, told me that. it's interesting the VA <laughs> thing is, says, well, yeah, you've got malarial antibodies and so because you, so it means that you've had malaria, but you're not having an active outbreak right now. Take these drugs and we'll stop it. But you, it's service connected, but we're not going to give you any disability for it because you're not having any more attacks. Oh man. <laughs> okay. But yeah, it's, it's a. It's excellent. It's excellent healthcare, and I mean, you've got you use it too, Michael. I mean, you've got yeah. you've got uh, fairly some ser- serious, potentially serious health issues yourself. Yeah, I, I have MS, and um, I got it diagnosed outside of the VA, uh, outside of the Veterans Administration's healthcare system. But um, once I entered it, you know, for a while I didn't feel like I deserved it, honestly, because um, I never looked at myself as having post traumatic stress. I knew there were uh, veterans who who were in much more dire financial situations than me. Um, where I um, worked, I had access to healthcare, so I never really thought about it. Uh, but then um, I all of a sudden didn't have access to healthcare, so I said, "Well, let me go ahead and try the VA," and I did, and. And this, I wouldn't change, um, honestly. Um, it's a great system in terms of how I've been treated within it. Um, yeah. But, you know, we do want to talk a little bit about some of the problems with the VA because the VA certainly has problems. Um, we want to, I think we want to talk a little bit about the funding. Um, Mike, you were saying to me one day that uh, you're supposed to get a procedure done, but with COVID and everything, and this is just not the VA healthcare system, this is happening throughout U.S. healthcare system, and, and I'm, I'm guessing maybe even around the world, certainly many countries, being overrun with uh, COVID 
patients that people who need to get other things done can't get things done. And some people are dying as a result of that. Um, but, you know, just thinking about the VA and how the three of us seem to have had a great experience. I know a number of people who didn't. Um, and I think there's various reasons. Some of it is regional. Some of it is just workers. Sometimes some workers just aren't good workers. And I'm certainly right. not saying the VA, the VA has great workers, but no matter where you work, there's some people who don't really care, et cetera. So that's, that's one thing. Then there's some, with women, there's some institutional issues when it comes to the VA because it's not as um, friendly, let's say, to women as it is to men because the military, just like the military, that's the reason. The military hasn't been as friendly. Um, so there's been services and things like that. So I think those are some reasons, but then a huge reason, which I'm sure we're gonna talk about more, is not having the resources, enough resources. So I don't know, um, you wanna speak a little bit to some of those things uh, there, Mark? Sure. Um, like I said, I, I've been going to the VA for uh, 53 years. Um, I have gone out to the private sector uh, at different times early on, because when I was going to the VA hospital here in Milwaukee in the early 70s, it was a it was a hellhole. I mean, it really was. It they it was in the 70s. They 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 knew that veterans were coming back with some kind of stress, but they were able to finally, in the 80s in particular, label uh, post traumatic stress. And, and I just want to leave it at post-traumatic stress because I feel that the disorder is not with us right. who, who followed orders. It's the people who were given the orders right. and, and, and the Congress and the president that were taking us into these insane situations around the planet. Right. Um, so they knew nothing about how to deal with post-traumatic stress. And so many in the early 70s, so many of us coming back from Vietnam were raw with our anger, with, with our stress, with taking drugs and, and becoming violent. Um, you know, I mean, we didn't know what to do. And um, so I, I, I didn't enjoy going to the VA in the 70s or the 80s for that matter. Mm. I, I did for most of my care, um, but I saw firsthand how overwhelmed the staff was. And so by the 90s, 1990s, they were learning a lot more about post, they were recognizing it, uh, post-traumatic stress, and um, hiring more mental health professionals to, to help us. Uh, and by 2000, uh, 2010 and now to 2021, um, they, whenever I've needed to go in for mental health uh, situations, it, it doesn't take long at all for them to set up an appointment. Not only that, not only that, but, you know, I've had a lot of physical problems too. And I, I'm getting older now and we're all Vietnam vets are getting to that age now where aging creates a lot of problems in itself especially if you've got pre-existing problems. Um, and the VA um, have become much more holistic in the way that they approach us. Um, they want to know if we're, if we're dealing with post-traumatic stress. Mm. 
uh, if we believe that we are, and and then they'll set us up with with mental health professionals. Um, and if we have physical problems, uh, they've really made made the space available down in the basement of the VA here in Milwaukee um, with all kinds of exercise machines. And uh, they've got a swimming pool down there. Um, it's they've they've especially in from the '90s until the present. Um, there's been a lot more support from Congress to provide more staff. The problem is nationally, we are we have a real lack of mental health or not mental physical and mental health professionals throughout our whole nation, let mm-hmm. alone the VA. Mm-hmm. Um, but the but the doctors and the and the nurses, the staff at the VA, truly have taken on an attitude because they've been trained to understand post-traumatic stress that we come into the building with it. So many of us, and they really respect us for, for having gone through what we we've gone through and making it um, doing the best we can. And so there's this whole attitude. When I walk into the VA, this whole attitude of brotherhood and sisterhood, um, that you do not get in the private sector. And now, thanks to the, the Mission Act of 2018, thanks to Trump uh, and the Veterans Community Care Program, um, they're, they're encouraging veterans to go outside of the VA. Um, and they, they want us to believe that the care that we're going to get outside of the VA is better than the VA, and it just absolutely is not better. Um, I, I mean, the doctors outside of the VA and the nurses don't have really much incentive to be as involved with the multiple injuries that combat veterans in particular come back home with. And that's what I was um, referring to with a holistic approach sure. to taking care of us. It's sure. not just physical, you know, it's right. emotional, yeah. psychological, spiritual. The, uh, the VA is, you know, really the, the, the source for dealing with PTSD, especially with military um, trauma. And, out, and you're right, just outside of it, but it, because they just don't have the experience. Right. Um, I, I just want to quickly mention the fact that it was veterans themselves and Vietnam veterans themselves, uh, Vietnam veterans against the war and others who actually pushed the VA with their allies to recognize PTSD for what right. it did, which is, which is trauma associated with. And with Agent trauma. Orange as well. And Agent Orange too. Right. And, and it was the veterans, us, that yep. formed, formed the VA. And the VA is actually staffed. A lot of the VA staff are actually veterans. Mm-hmm. Um, right. 40%, yeah. as I understand. Right. Okay. And, and so it's, it, it's, it's a, you know, there's a built-in sort of uh, sim- simpatico there with uh, with uh, the staff. Yes. Yeah. You know, I have to say, especially f- going directly from private sector healthcare to the VA, and then uh, a little bit having to when I first started taking um, this infusion, I have to get every month. The first one I did was uh, while I was in the VA system, 
but they weren't prepared to do it yet. So I was in St. Louis. So I actually had to go to uh, the, the private hospital there. I can't Barnes Jewish to do it. So there I was kind of like in seeing how the healthcare works in a way or how it feels. Let me put it like that, how it felt to me in both places. And the thing is, when I go to the VA, I see a lot of other veterans, mm-hmm. you know, and that just gives me a different kind of feeling than when sure. I go to the private sector healthcare. And I don't know if you're a veteran or not. More than likely, you're not. Yeah. And there's, a, I don't know. And even the way that it, the, the building feels, it feels like there's more money put in the building than maybe the healthcare, or I don't even know how to explain what I'm saying, <laughs> you know, but yeah. I just feel more at home when I go get my healthcare at, at a VA hospital than right. I do when I go to a private sector doctor. And that's not to say I'm getting worse care at private sector doctor. I am saying though, that my veteran experience means something when I go get my health care. Right. You know? Yeah. So. Um, you know, and, and another thing that I think is really important for all of us veterans to understand is that not every VA hospital in the country is the same. Right. Um, you know, and, and they, they've developed a rating system for VA hospitals, uh, one through five, um, one, being the best and then five being the worst and um the va hospital here in milwaukee is rated a three okay uh, which which is above average uh-huh. a little above average and i think it's excellent um you know so check here i don't even know do you have any idea mike no what i don't know but it's generally at? generally commented that uh, west coast that is oregon washington california va facilities are among the best in the country. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Madison, I live in Wisconsin. Yeah. And, and uh, the VA in Madison is rated a five. Yeah. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, but they don't, they don't serve nearly as many veterans as uh, the one in Milwaukee where I go. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I, I mean, veterans need to understand, especially Vietnam veterans who did go to the VA hospitals back in the 70s and 80s, I mean, they they had horrible experiences. Right. So many of them, and and they they never let go of that feeling. Sure. And it's too bad. It's really too yeah. bad because they have come such a long way. Well, it's hard to let go of the on the ground experiences. Um, yeah. But um, so you are doing work with Save RVA, um, SOVA as it's called in uh, Veterans for Peace. Can you I, tell us? A little bit about that. What what save our VA? What would that mean to someone that doesn't know anything about what's happening? Basically, it's it's an understanding that this, like I mentioned before, in 2018, the Trump Trump and his cohorts who are invested heavily in um, medical insurance and and um, private hospitals um, developed this thing they call the mission act and you know in in um in our involvement in the middle east has created a whole um a lot of violence in that part of the world it's it's uh there are more iraq afghanistan veterans committing suicide percentage wise than 
than the suicides from the Vietnam War mm. uh, veterans. Mm. And so they're, 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 they realized, they, Congress realized <coughs> that they needed to um, put in more support for veterans, right. um, you know, coming home from the Middle Eastern wars. Right. And, and, and their, their, our nation, the people in our nation, uh, we're very much behind the whole idea of giving as much support to veterans as we possibly could. Right. And so then the Trump administration comes up with this plan. It's called the Mission Act. Um, and then two years later, they came up with this um, veterans um, community health care program. Community meaning send the veterans out to the, the um, private sector. And we knew right away um, that when we heard that they, they wanted to send veterans out to the private health care um, system, that they were not only were they taking veterans away from this incredible evolution of, of developing fabulous health care. Um, let's see, what was I going to say? Um, what was the downside of taking the veterans away? What were they trying to do? Yeah, it was, it was uh, to us, it was clear that this was a privatization effort. Uh -huh, they wanted right. to privatize the VA. Right. They want to privatize all government programs. And when right. I say they, I'm talking about the rich. Right. The rich people in the United States make their money, make their profits from all these private uh, things they're involved in, and and they they feel that they're in competition with any government program, right? You know, so they want to privatize everything. Well, let me and, let me um, give a number so people understand the difference between when you say you said a few minutes ago that um, there was realization by Congress that they need to put more money into the VA healthcare system or the VA. Um, so in 2000, and I, re I read this on military.com, I believe it was. In 2000, there were about $47 billion was allocated um, to the uh, Veterans Administration. As of this year, 2021, is $240 billion. So that was a, an amazing increase. And then with the, I can't remember the, the name of the two, but the stimulus because of COVID, um, the VA received I'm not sure exactly how much, but maybe nine to 18 billion more dollars uh, yeah. to help out with everything. It's, that's yeah, I think going it's on. Uh, 257 billion. Now. Okay. Yeah. So, and, so there has the private been sector wants that money. Right. Well, that's, that's one of the things that um, over the years. So I also wanted to say this, it's not just Trump because there, there's been an effort. It wasn't just Trump. Uh, it, there was an effort to privatize the VA long before uh Trump became president. And I know VA and VA Veterans for Peace has been standing up against that um, uh, the whole time. I was executive director. We've been talking about it. Um, yeah. So that that's one thing. Um, and the other thing, one of the reasons that uh, we feel like as Veterans for Peace, um, at least what I was told in the past, is because uh, the VA and the VA healthcare is the largest, you could say, social um, social uh, hospital program right. in the right. country right yeah. and it's and it's okay we, we we admit there's problems and there's some problems that are terrible yeah. um, like people being denied uh, their benefits even though they clearly have traumatic brain injury for example mm -hmm. um 
But on whole, it's taken care of over uh, 9 million veterans is what I read. So there's 9 right. million people that are in that system. Well, the, the 9 million veterans go to VA. Hospital. Go to VA. That's there, right. There's like 20 million veterans. There's 20 million the veterans States. in the country. Right. Um, so it's successful. So that's kind of a kind of model for universal health care. So the longer that that's around, you know, it acts as a threat to this idea of there being universal health care. So that's one of the reasons they want to privatize it because they want the money is in it. And they also yeah. want to destroy the philosophy or even idea of there being universal health care. Right, right. Yeah, the, good the, point. A part of this sort of thing is it is the rich and the wealthy that want to siphon off the federal money into, into private sort of thing. But the, the actual number of veterans, as I understand it, getting health care is going down. But the severity of the right. of the uh, problems that veterans has has gone up, and that's, that's right. directly uh, due to twenty years of our last war. That's right. The older veterans, like like myself and you, Mark, are are still in the system, but uh -huh. um, the um, and that is, doesn't even include. It says like the elephant in the living room is the toxic exposure from your generation, uh, right, Michael, of right. of uh, Iraq one. Right. And it's a huge unresolved issue, but it's like, the, you know, the health, the, uh, they haven't even begun to ad address it or address it. You're talking right. about millions of. Uh, I read that there's 3.5 million, um, possibly 3.5 million veterans exposed to toxic fumes, to you know, the toxicity that you're talking about from the first Gulf War. So that's over a third of the, if I don't even know how many of them are actually already in the system. So, yeah. you know, either there's a third of what's in the system or there's going to be millions of more that should be in the system. Yes. Well, they don't yeah. they don't want to admit that that is a problem. The no. same thing was true of Agent Orange. This is, right. you know, this is a problem. Well, what, when when you do admit that Agent Orange is and was a problem and that the toxic poisoning from Gulf Wars, this is this is this is the military doesn't want to admit it. No. VA sort of just dragged kicking and screaming into that realization too. And the federal funders, the Congress, they don't want to admit it because it says, well, how did you, how did, how did these veterans get, get into the state family? You, you sent them to war. Yeah. You poisoned <laughs> them. Yeah. You know, and it's your fault. Yeah. And they, mm -hmm. and some of these Republican people are members of the appropriation veterans affairs portion are talking about, well, maybe this budget is too much. We got to yeah. figure out a way to reduce it. Right. You know, and it's not going to get any better. It's going to get worse. Yeah. Yeah. You know, um, the Koch brothers in 2014 um, decided to donate $20 million to hire journalists and um, put on ads on TV about things that were going wrong in the VA hospitals mm. so that they could get the public to believe that the VA hospitals are inept oh, at what they're doing. Right. And that's, that's what not to fix it, not to fix yeah. it, <laughs> but to make, make, make it look bad. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And I mean, they just accentuated. Yes. There were things that needed fixing in VA hospitals. Right. Definitely. And, and that goes for the private hospitals too. Right. You know, that and another major point is that because the VA is run by the government, it had the, the oversight of what's going on mm. in VA hospitals yeah. is a whole lot more strenuous than in the private hospitals. You don't, I don't, I don't ever remember. Well, maybe a couple times in my lifetime have I heard um, on the news 
that some private hospital made a huge mistake and somebody sued him and, and like that. But you don't hear about it much at all. No. Um, and that, as there, if it's not happening, but of course it is because yeah. that, that's just statistically it has to right. be happening. So, right. you know, right. but I'm sure they probably have, um, you know how you can pay someone off, but they, you can't talk about it. So there's things happening uh-huh. where no yeah. one, because they don't talk about it, you know? Right. So. Right. They've got all the bases covered. Yeah. You know, to so you were their- mentioned you were about to say um, when the Koch brothers did that research, did Sova? That's you- when Sova got that got our ears went up. You know, I mean, we were we we knew from having been involved with the VA hospitals and seeing the wonderful evolution of healthcare. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew that yes, there were some things that needed to be changed in VA hospitals, but they overall they had gotten so much better and it became obvious to us when when we started hearing about um these uh veterans who couldn't get into a hospital like down in phoenix was was the uh, a big one for the mm-hmm. Koch brothers to get that out in the into the public mind that that the va hospitals are inadequate and and uh, we need to send our veterans out to the really professional doctors and nurses in the private sector. That's bullshit. You know, that's that's all uh, mythology. Right. Um, yeah. So when when um, when we heard about uh, the Koch brothers donating the 20 million and then hearing negative things periodically going on in VA hospitals, we knew there was a push to privatize um, the VA. And that's when uh, Save Our VA began. And since then, we have been quite instrumental in making connections with our congressional representatives, especially Mm -hmm. those who were head of the uh, VA committees in in the Senate and the House. We're we're making, slowly but surely, we've been making um, friends with okay. with our congressional representatives because they're the ones that okay. that um, hold the purse strings, right? That's you know? right. That's right. And we need to educate them about this privatization effort because Congress, you know, they have hundreds of bills before them, right? And they can't; they don't have time to read all of that stuff. Um, and you know, it sounds good to um, you know take. Uh, take our veterans out into the private for-profit world. Um, But it's not, it's just not good for veterans. Well, um, Mike, do you have something else that you want to ask before we close? Just to comment quickly on on the veterans affairs committees in both houses is that it's, it's, it's Republicans generally who are the ones that say they don't want to come out and say that they don't want to uh, give uh, veterans enough funding, but they criticize the long-term implications of it. And it's basically a Republican, uh, rich Republicans. We, you know, you don't really, background is you don't really deserve this money because I don't know, it's your fault. Uh, You wouldn't have the smarts to stay out of the military. I don't know. Yeah. You know, that, that sort of attitude is still there and it's particularly predominant among the Republican members. Yeah. Yep. Well, there are a lot of Democrats that that are voting to um, support the veterans health care program, yeah. uh, community health care program, yeah. Yeah. you know, 
because right. they believe they're doing the right thing. But yeah. we're, we're, we're there trying to educate them. That's what well, the one, one, of the, one of the predominant members of the, uh, of the healthcare committee is Patty Murray, Senator from the state of Washington. And when she voted for that, she said she thought that she was doing the right thing. She's since changed her mind. Oh, and good. good for her. You know, yeah. some of the other people says, he says, this is, she recognized for what it was, which is a switch and bait, bait yeah. and sort of thing. Yeah. Well, it's, it, this is a long-term commitment to educate our Congress. Most you know? yeah. um, before we go, uh, let me say this, and then uh, Mark, if you could just, you know, give any last words you want the audience to know or anything you think they should do. Um, the two parties have sent us to war year after year after year. Yeah. And the biggest reason that we have this big increase in the cost of taking care of veterans is because, as you all said, the 20 years of war. So I just want our 20 plus years, really, because honestly, I was when I was doing a little research for this, I saw and I have to make sure I'm right about this. But it looks like that the the VA is now calling 1990 up to this period, the Gulf War veterans. So. Uh -huh. I believe they, yeah, so they're calling that whole period making me a Gulf War veteran already. I already knew that. But uh -huh. people tend to want to separate the current era with, you know, the Iraq War and Afghanistan from that original invasion in 1990. But they're all the same. So we're really yes. talking about 31 years of war is what we're talking right. about. And not to mention the other little things the United States has been doing and do undercover and all that. All so over people, the world. If yeah. you want uh, to help veterans, get our country under control, get our government under control, demand that we do more than go to war, that there's other ways to solve international conflicts than sending young men and women to kill other people. You know, that's yeah. that's what if you really want to support us is what I'm saying, mm -hmm. you know, and save money. Let's be yeah. pragmatic. And you want to yes. save money, right? Let your tax it dollars do something else. save a ton of money. Right. You know, let's, let's get this government under control. So, Mark, yeah, if you, anything else? Okay. You well, we, you know, Eisenhower coming out with his farewell address, warning us about the military industrial yeah. complex. Yeah. And, and now it's the industrial and congressional complex. Mm. Mm. I mean, the wealthy in Congress um, are invested in the military machine. Mm. And it was, it was the most highly decorated officer in U.S. history that came out with a book after he served, um, uh, I don't know, I don't, quite a few years in the military. Yeah. Um, Smedley Butler, Butler, General yeah. Smedley Butler, who wrote a book called War is a Racket. And, right. he, and he came to the conclusion that if you want to stop war, take the profit out of it. Right. And, and so that's what Eisenhower meant, was that it, it's become an industrial complex war. Mm -hmm. And, and the, those who make the war machines for our young people to go and die and kill and everything, in the end, the war machine makers are making out like bandits. Yep. They that's want right. war. They they that's how they make their money. And yeah. we we've got to wake up. Right. Uh, yeah. And selling and selling the arms around the world, not just for us to go to war, for everybody to go oh, to war. Right. We are the big biggest arms seller in yeah. the, of any country in the world it's by such, far. It's such a racket, man. 
Oh it, is. it is. Uh, Mike, Let's you have wake any... up. Well, yeah. yeah, I mean, one of the biggest people, part of that racket is the Boeing company, and they produce the drones and the bombers and the, the fighter planes and uh, McDonnell yeah. Douglas, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it's real sexy, you know, yeah, yeah, all this. Yeah. yeah. Well, thank you, Mark, so much for, uh, you know, being on this um, show, zooming in and, and talking to us about um, VA and SOVA. Appreciate it. And your experience um, as, as, a, as a soldier. Yeah, thank you very much for inviting me. Definitely. Yeah, well, uh, I'll, thank you also, Mark, and, uh, you know, welcome home. That's what I like to tell That's people. Right. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, you too, yeah. both of you. Okay, so our show is about over, but before we go, I just want to say happy holidays. I hope everyone is having fun with their family and doing your best to stay, to stay safe uh, in this time of COVID. I also want to tell people very briefly about something called the Christmas truce. Um, maybe uh, maybe you've heard of it, maybe you haven't, but the Christmas truce uh, happened in 1914 at the beginning, pretty much close to the beginning of World War I. Um, I'm going to read this to you from history.com. The Christmas truce occurred on and around Christmas Day 1914 when the sounds of rifles, firing, and shells exploded, faded in a number of places along the Western Front during World War I in favor of holiday celebrations. During the unofficial ceasefire, soldiers on both sides of the conflict emerged from the trenches and shared gestures of goodwill. Now here's something I didn't know. On December 7th, 1914, Pope Benedict XV suggested a temporary hiatus of the war for celebration of Christmas. The roaring countries refused to create any official ceasefire, but on Christmas, the soldiers in the trenches declared their own unofficial truce. And, and for me, that shows just how powerful religion can be and religious leaders um, for bad or good. And fortunately, in that instance, it was a good thing. So what happened during the Christmas truce of 1914? So starting on Christmas Eve, many Germans and British troops fighting in World War I saying Christmas carols to each other across the lines. And at a certain point, the Allied soldiers even heard brass bands joining the Germans in their joyous singing. At the first light of dawn on Christmas Day, some German soldiers emerged from their trenches and approached the Allied lines across no man's land, calling out Merry Christmas in their enemies' native tongues. Now, no man's land was a trench warfare. Um, that if you came out of your trenches while the fighting was going on, you more than likely were going to get killed. At first, the Allied soldiers feared it was a trick, but seeing the Germans unarmed, they climbed out of their trenches and shook hands with the enemy soldiers. The men exchanged presents of cigarettes and plum puddings and sang carols and songs. Some Germans lit Christmas trees around their trenches, and there was even a documented case of soldiers from opposing sides playing a good-natured game of soccer. The so-called Christmas truce of 1914 came only five months after the outbreak of war, of war in Europe and was one of the last examples of the outdated notion of chivalry between enemies in war. It was never repeated. Future attempts at holiday ceasefires were squashed by officers' threats of disciplinary action. But it served as a heartening proof, however brief, that beneath the brutal clash of weapons, the soldiers' essential humanity endured. During World War I, the soldiers on the Western Front did not expect to celebrate on the battlefield, but even a world war could not destroy the Christmas spirit. 
But like I said, it's like I said, that's from uh, history.com. One of the things that stands out for me in that is that, first of all, that the soldiers clearly didn't really want to fight each other. And they weren't real clear on why they were fighting each other. Of course, as time went on and you get into the fighting and you see your buddy get killed and you know that the people on the other side are the ones that did it, you want to get revenge and that's the end of that. Because um, you fight for your buddy and you want uh, to get back at whoever killed him, right? So it becomes that vicious cycle of violence begets violence. But it's also interesting, the second thing that I find interesting about it is that in order to squash it, um, the soldiers had to be threatened by their leaders. They had to be threatened by the officers that if you do this again, we're going to court-martial you or, you know, maybe treason or something of that nature. So for me, it shows that really the average soldier, the average person who is sent to war doesn't want to fight. People not even clear on why they're fighting each other. If they have the opportunity to sit down and talk to each other, they probably wouldn't fight each other. And that interest push us to fight. So when they say, for example, we need to protect U.S. interests, all of us need to think about well, what interest is that exactly? Whose interests are we really talking about when we talk about it? Is that really my interest? Is the outcome of this war really going to change my circumstance here? And, you know, I'm in Seattle or if you're in Newark, New Jersey, or if you're in Memphis, Tennessee, or St. Louis, these are places I have lived, Federal, North Carolina. Um, how is this war really going to make my world, what's happening with my family better? And what price is it with all the people that will be killed here, my people? Um, when I say here, I mean people from the U.S. who are more than likely if the war is happening, fighting somewhere else and the people that are being killed in foreign lands, like all those people who die in Afghanistan. How did that help me here at home? Is there any, do I have anything moral to stand on, any moral standing to talk about those deaths or those people there being right to keep me safe? These are the things that I think we need to talk about uh, when, when it comes to U.S. going to war and being in war and the ongoing conflict. And we should look back to the Christmas truce and understanding that people really don't want to fight each other. We're pushed to fight each other. And those who gain from it, people who fight gain the least. And those who send us gain the most. And, and we really need to, we need to think about what that means. Okay, once again, happy holidays. Thank you again for listening to our show. Thanks to Mark Foreman. Vietnam veteran and Veterans for Peace member who works with the Save Our VA campaign, also known short as SOVA. You can find more information about the campaign at veteransforpeace.org under Take Action. The theme music you hear is Victory, and the other music is Ignorant Boom Bap Beat, both from the Passion Hi-Fi. You can hear his music at thepassionhi-fi.com. Again, thank you for tuning in, and until next time, Power to the Peace.